we surrender and submit the challenges and difficulties and the uncertainties and the worries, and we leave them with Him. Father, I can't deal with this. I don't know what to do. I don't know what decision to make. I'm uncertain of the way forward, but I know this. You can help me. Allow me, please, to hand over all of this to you. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Acts chapter 11, and you'll find it on page 1711 of the Church Pew Bible page 1711, as we continue our study in the book of Acts. As many of you are aware, we have been steadily working our way through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings over these last nine weeks together, and today we come to our penultimate study, wrapping things up in Acts next Sunday morning. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to their ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy word. If this morning I was to ask you to think back over these nine Sundays together, and if there was one thing that stuck out in your mind as a summary of the book of Acts so far, what would that be? What is the one thing that would immediately come to your mind? Luke, from time to time, has a wonderful way of helping us with that thought, and he produces for us what are called summary paragraphs. And in one of the summary paragraphs, you'll find them in chapter 4, towards the end of chapter 5, and at the end of chapter 9, this is what he says, summing up all that God was doing in those early years of the infant church. And he writes, then the church throughout Judea, 
Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. As we have discovered over these weeks together, there were moments of spectacular movements of the Spirit of God, of course at Pentecost, of course in those early weeks in Jerusalem, of course on the road to Damascus when Saul was transformed by the grace and love of God. And so when Luke stands back, he gives us a much greater picture of what was going on. And today our focus shifts no longer in Jerusalem, not just north of Jerusalem in Joppa and Caesarea where we were last Sunday, but we're now moving 500 miles north to the city of Antioch. What we said nine weeks ago when we first started was this, that you'll get a feel and a flavor of the timeline of the book of Acts, you'll get a feel and a flavor of the people involved, and your geographical understanding of the Holy Land and cities and towns and regions surrounding it, you'll become much more familiar with. And the bottom right-hand side, you'll see Jerusalem, which of course was an ancient Palestine of its day, and if you go north and a little to the west, you find Caesarea where we were last week north again, you'll find Syria as you cross the border, Seleucia, and then Antioch. Over to the left is Cyprus, uh, and down the bottom left, you can just see it as the North African coast. Now, in order to get a sense of what was happening at Antioch, it's helpful to understand the context. The city of Antioch was founded around the year 300 BC by one of Alexander the Great's generals. He named it after his own father, and so it was named Antioch. There was a major port 15 miles to the west that had an open uh, channel in terms of a navigatable river, and so there was a lot of import, export, and trade and so on happening at Antioch. The population, first century historians tell us, was approximately half a million people. Now, can you imagine the infrastructure it took to support half a million people in the first century? This is a large, growing, thriving metropolis is probably the best word we can use. The community was made up of people with a Jewish background, many of them from the old Persian Empire, some of them as far to the east as India, and further on again into China. And there was such a significant group from China that historians noted it in the day. To say it is a thriving, growing, busy, complex city is absolutely accurate. That was first century Antioch was swept up into the Roman Empire around the year 64 BC. It was the capital of the Imperium province of Syria, and that meant Roman government, Roman language, when it came to legal documents and so on, was used, particularly Latin. It was called the third city of the empire after Rome itself in Alexandria, just north of modern-day Cairo. And if you go to Alexandria today, you get a feel and a sense of it was one of the largest cities of the empire. So Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, that gives you a sense of what was taking place there. The church in Jerusalem were so impressed with all that happened in Antioch. Luke records this for us. Barnabas was sent by the church in Jerusalem, and this is what we read. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them 
encourage them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, if you're not in the habit of underlining your Bible, please let me encourage you to do that from time to time, but do it tastefully and carefully. And if you do underline your Bible, this is one of the verses you should have underlined in Acts 11.23. It's a spectacular verse which tells us so much about the infant church, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time on it this morning. So let me ask you to look at it again. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. A church is defined by how often it focuses on the priorities laid out here. And the number one priority for the infant church and for us today is this apostolic teaching. So, on a Sunday morning, you will know this, that if you worship regularly at First Prayers, we are always going to do this. We are always going to seek excellence in worship. We set a high bar for that. Secondly, prayer is important. You see it right here in the last line. They committed themselves, devoted themselves to apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They take it very seriously. But the first one on the list is apostolic teaching. And that means this. What did the apostles teach? The apostles taught the gospels. And the young infant church whom God was blessing, His hand was upon them, the grace of God was breaking out, the Spirit of God was impacting and transforming lives, and He was doing it how? Through apostolic teaching. And on Sunday morning, we're always going to spend time opening up God's Word, studying it together so we can know Him better and be equipped to live out our faith day by day by day in the messiness and distraction of daily living. And we get that from here, from the first century. And so, when Barnabas was looking for signs of the grace of God, that's what he was looking for. And when he arrived and saw that evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. Now, let me pause for a second, because you may be sitting there saying, Richard, thank you. I appreciate the history lesson. You've given us a little about the summary paragraphs in Acts. You've told us a little about Antioch. We're getting a sense of the geography. We've got the history lesson. We've got the cultural context. We get all that. But Richard, I need something this morning that I can take away and hold on to. Well, I've got two things for you. And the first is this, and it's a challenge. And here it comes. If the Holy Spirit this morning was to engage you in such a manner that you felt His convicting presence, and He asks you, is there evidence in your life that I indwell your heart? Is there evidence that you are living a Christ-like life, not just Sunday morning, but on Monday morning? If I were to ask your children, the Holy Spirit asks, are you a Christian man or woman? If I were to ask your parents, your next-door neighbor, colleagues whom you share an office with, people in your street, would they say of you, there is evidence of the grace of 
God at work. In other words, worship is a priority. Prayer is important. You have an appetite for the things of God, and you seek to live it out in what? In your behavior, in your speech, in your attitude. What motivates you? What drives you? Is there evidence of a Christ-like lifestyle. That's what Barnabas was asking of this young church in Antioch. Are they Christ-centered? Are there distinctive Christian values in their lives? That's what's going on here. And Barnabas delighted in it to say what? There was evidence of the grace of God, and he was glad And what Barnabas is doing to the church in Antioch is this, encouraging them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Hear it again. Encouraging them all to remain, persevere, keep going. When it gets tough, you dig deeper. Remain true to the Lord with all all their hearts. Now, let me begin to apply that this morning. If you're here this morning and you are facing major challenges in terms of your health, if you're here this morning and you're two minds about looking for job promotion, moving house, getting engaged, starting a family, you're concerned about your parents, grandparents, some of them in the early stages of dementia, and you're thinking, how on earth am I going to deal with this? Someone in your family has a terminal illness. How do you respond? And what Barnabas is saying here is this, that he is encouraging us, as well as the first century church, to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, what does that look like? It means this, that when we engage with the Lord in prayer, it means this, that we climb up into His lap, and we sit down, and we rest right there, and we surrender and submit the challenges and difficulties and the uncertainties and the worries, and we leave them with Him. Father, I can't deal with this. I don't know what to do. I don't know what decision to make. I'm uncertain of the way forward, but I know this. You can help me. Allow me, please, to hand over all of this to you. Do you remember the interesting illustration of the nine or ten-year-old girl who has a boyfriend for the first time, and she picks up a daisy And she wants to know, will he love her forever? And she pulls off the first petal, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And it works out that he loves her at the end. Oh, there's a big sense of relief. Now, that's a great illustration if you're a nine-year-old girl dating someone or have a crush on someone for the first time. But it's not good theology because when you look at the heart of God and you begin to dissect it, 
almost like a daisy and you begin to pull off the petals, this is what happens. He loves me. 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 Please hear that this morning. That's what Barnabas was saying. That's how he encouraged them by saying what? He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He wasn't going to give up on them. He wasn't going to abandon them. He wasn't going to desert them to the emotion of the moment. That's the power of the book of Acts. His love is eternal. His grace is transformative, fully equipping, fully engaging for whatever comes our way. I've told you this before, so please forgive me as I indulge myself once again Across the street from us, it's maybe less than, certainly less than 100 feet, live two wee girls. And they are the cutest things. Gray is age seven. Her sister is Kate. Kate is about this size. She's three. And when they come over to play with me, they call me Dr. Gibbons. I'm quite convinced they think my first name is Doctor. And their parents insist on that just to be polite. And when they come over, they will say to me, the one thing they want more than anything else is what they call a Superman spin. And it means this, that both of the girls will put their hands up in the air, I will scoop them up, and they'll lie across my arms like this, like Superman. And then, of course, I put them up and down, and I twirl around seven times, and I get to one and two, and then the giggles start, and they think it's just wonderful. And when we get to the end of seven, they say again, again, and then I say, oh no, and we go backwards, and they think this is just wonderful. And of course, when I put them down at the end, they are wobbling and staggering around and think this is great. To be truthful, I am kind of a little wobbly as well by the time I've done that. And they love this Superman spin. And their mum was with them a couple of weeks ago when the girls came over for a spin. And I said to their mum, whose name is Kim, Kim, would you like a Superman spin? And she was horrified that the pastor would pick her up and throw her throw around. And then dad arrived and I said, dad, would you like to try? Now, dad is six feet three. There was no possibility that I was ever going to do that. But he said, no, I'm fine. But the girls thought this was just so much fun. And yesterday, as we were involved in the Superman spin, I realized this, that in the midst of all of the giggling and the laughter and them saying, pick me, pick me, never for a moment, never for a fraction of a second, did it dawn on them that somehow I might stumble, lose my footing and fall. Not for a second. They were totally, totally dependent on me holding them and swinging them around. That's what's going on here. For the folks in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem, Barnabas was absolutely convinced he's got us. He will not abandon us. He will not let us go. And then the verse goes on. And we read, and so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, who had come from Tarsus, met with the church and taught, them, taught great numbers of people. And it finishes with this, at least this section, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, in the midst of a cosmopolitan city with significant communities of people from ancient Persia, ancient Palestine, India, China, what was it that was different about this group? And they were named Christians because others in the city 
could see that their lifestyle was different. Here were a people for whom prayer was a priority, worship was importance, Christian standards, and Christian values, and those defining moments of believing in the sanctity of life, the sacredness of marriage, even in the first century, was impacting the third city of the empire, and the grace of God was at work transforming and renewing lives and drawing them into a relationship with Himself, and others could see it right at the heart of the city. No wonder they were called Christians then. Having said all of that, let me close with a story. I told this on Friday night and at the new members' class yesterday, and I told it because it's a powerful story. It's a powerful story that is so, so focused on the love and grace of God. And it happened to me in 1984. I was studying at Glasgow Bible College along with Ruth, and we met for the first time an American. Laura Rose lived in Portland, Oregon. She, was, she had traveled across the continental United States. She changed at JFK. She crossed the Atlantic and arrived in Glasgow, Scotland about 6.30 one wet July morning. She was coming on a student exchange program for a year. Ladies, please forgive me for this. She had the largest suitcase known to humanity. It was enormous. It had six wheels underneath. You can imagine packing for a year, and she had a length of rope on one side, and she would pull it behind her like this. How she ever got it off the carousel and onto the Glasgow underground, I have no idea. But she arrived in the west end of Glasgow at the college. She introduced herself. She signed all the necessary paperwork. They'd been expecting her, and they gave her keys to the student accommodation. It was about three quarters of a mile from the college. And so, Along with her suitcase, she made her way three quarters of a mile in the rain, and she said, I honestly hadn't expected it to be raining in July, and we said, welcome to Scotland. And so she was, by the time she got there, she was drenched all the way through, feeling utterly miserable, having been up for the best part of 30 hours. She dragged the suitcase up four flights of stairs through what is described as the outside door, the storm door, through the glass door. She selected one of the rooms, dropped her case, and put on the light, and nothing happened. And she thought, that's a little odd. Plugged in the fire, no heat. It wasn't working. So she phoned the college, and the college explained that when you move into student accommodation, Part and parcel of living there is you pay for utility bills. They weren't involved with her accommodation cost. And they also explained to her that if she goes to the front door, there's a cupboard next to it, it's high up in the wall. If you open it, you'll find a utility meter. You feed some pound coins in there, you turn the handle, on will come the utilities. And she said, I've just arrived and I have no British coins. They said, well, come on back down, and we'll give you some. So she closed the inner door, the outer door, down four steps, walked three quarters of a mile in the rain again, exchanged some money, back three quarters of a mile, up the four flights, in through the storm door and the glass door, opened the cupboard, put in the coins, turned the handle, and heating and lighting came on. And she fell down on the edge of the bed, and she lay down, just exhausted, soaking through, and she started to pray. And she said, Father, why have you called me here? 
I don't know another living soul. I can't work out the money. I don't understand the language. It took her the best part of seven to ten days to realize we speak English in Scotland. And so she struggled, and she said, what on earth have you done? I could have gone to Africa or China or New Guinea. Why here? And there was no obvious answer. And no reassuring presence, no God's hand in her life encouraging her. And after 10 minutes or so, she got up, she went through to the bathroom, she ran the water, tried to freshen up her face and her hands, and she walked back through to her bedroom. She lifted the lid of her suitcase, which was in the bed opposite, and as she flipped the lid, her eye caught a poster on the wall left by a student the year before. And it was a poster of a mountain range, a mountain range in Portland, Oregon. And underneath it said this, grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will see me home. At that moment, that solitary second, she understood God's grace, His foreknowledge, His love, His leading, His guiding, and exactly why she was in the right place. I've often thought that the next time I see her, I will want to ask her, is she continuing to love Him with all of her heart and soul and mind? And my guess is she is. That's grace. That's what God does to us day by day by day by day. And if you remember nothing about our study this morning, please remember this. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the spectacular passage of Scripture the powerful challenge it is upon our lives. Allow each one of us this week to engage with Your grace once more, to feel Your presence with us, Your hand upon us, and enable us fully to surrender and submit every area of our lives to You. Father, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The support group ministry at First Presbyterian Church gives help, friendship, compassion, and spiritual comfort to those who are hurting or experiencing times of special need. Trained and experienced facilitators lead grief share for those dealing with the loss of a loved one, divorce care for both adults and children, and help for families, which provides support for those concerned about a friend or a family member identifying as LGBT. For more information, visit firstpressgreenville.org or call the Congregational Care Office at 864-235-0496.